I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 24th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about the Cubs-Indians World Series matchup, the idea of the long-suffering sports fan base, and whether a Cubs title is indeed the last great American sports story. We'll also discuss the upcoming season premiere of our national soap opera, the National Basketball Association, and Deadspin's Diana Moskovitz will join us to look at the NFL's handling of the Josh Brown domestic abuse case and the finding by a civil jury that Derek Rose is not liable on charges of gang rape. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. Mike Pesca is out this week, filling in for him, joining us from his lavish home, complete with a studio-quality microphone. It's Pablo Torre, a senior writer at ESPN. You may have seen him on such television programs as around the horn, highly questionable, and pardon the interruption. Hello, Pablo. Do I need to do a Mike Pesca impression, or am I like good being myself? Nobody can Im- impress <laughs> Mike Pesca. Fair. I think can you good. use impress as a verb that way? <laughs> <laughs> you're the dictionary guy, dude. It's true. I am the dictionary guy. I'm going to defer can't, to your judgment. You will be able to soon, I promise. <laughs> So, Pablo, we're going to start with Whimsy Watch. Search for Whimsy in the yes. most uh, non-whimsical of places, the NFL. So, Stefan is really psyched about the Eli Manning audible call at the mm-hmm. line of scrimmage in the London game. Let's listen to that. Hey, drop, 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 drop. You're coming to sideline, you ball. Are you aware, Pablo, that Eli Manning is denying that he said Trump? I heard, I saw that yesterday, and and part of me was hoping that there was something to the theory, which I have just uh, developed, that he was actually paying homage to the John Oliver Drumpf 
segment and mm-hmm. was actually critiquing Donald Trump at the line of scrimmage. But I feel like he's just doing that Manning thing where something controversial has happened and now he's just going to deny it, which is unfortunate. I think I think there's a TV commercial to be made out of this where Eli and Peyton are playing bridge and they hear him say Trump, Trump, Trump. And then Eli says, no Trump, no Trump. And they move on to the next hand. That's great. <laughs> um, it is a very kind of election 2016 thing for something to be invoked in Trump's name and then immediately denied. denied. Yes. Um, okay, the next whimsy watch was Rob Gronkowski. This is immediately after he's asked by a reporter in a post-game press conference about tying the uh, Patriots team record with his 68th touchdown. Uh, one more, I got 69 touchdowns, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Only you know what I mean, baby. <laughs> He's like a walking American pie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's so much. I mean, first off, that's 100 uh, percent enjoyable in that innocuous uh, Rob Gronkowski is America's meathead sense. If the baby he's addressing is a dude. Right. Like that's the best version of yes, this. Right. And yes. if it's in fact a woman, he's just plucked out in the audience of the press corps. That becomes just becomes darker. But I want to maintain the image of Gronk just bringing, I mean, basically shattering a little bit of masculinity there, bringing that guy who's undoubtedly nodding and winking at him into the fraternity of Gronk. He is the human embodiment of locker room talk. <laughs> I, I have developed something that I like to call the Gronk Index, which is a scientific way to measure the meat headiness of a male human. And that is take any number that's like even close to 69, the distance away from 69 that the number is that inspires the person to think about 69 or to say 69, that is the Gronk index. So 68, <laughs> like that's pretty close. Yeah. Next week, you got to start asking Rob Gronkowski 67, see if his mind goes there, 66. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, let's see how low we can go. Or over under <laughs> too. What if 71? I don't, I don't think that's how Gronk's brain works. Don't I don't think, think he can go backwards. I don't think he can go backwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So the, and then finally we have. Oh, my God. We have last night, Sunday night. Six, six, six. Six, you know, six. You know what? That's uh, could have been. Uh, you know what? It could have been. Hey, it could all have right. been nine, six. <laughs> it could have been. Um, what, what did you make of that game, Stefan? Well, I only turned it on when I discovered that it was three, three with like a minute to go in the fourth quarter. Um, because I had no interest in watching either of those teams or watching football on uh, on Sunday night this week, um, and I was very excited as as listeners of this of this show know both because it was an all field goal game and shaping up to be a a, a field goal winning game, but also because you know three three not a lot of three three games in NFL history. Chris Burke um, pointed out that there hadn't been a three three game since Bears Giants in 1937. I tweeted immediately. There had only been one five to three game, Frankfurt Yellow Jackets over the New York Giants in 1925. So I was pulling for the safety there at the end. But then when we didn't get the safety, we went to overtime, six three, six six. There had been no six six final since 1972, Eagles, Cardinals. Cardinals have been, been involved in all three six six games that involved four field goals. What a great tribute to that franchise and the kickers in those games whoa we're talking about jim bakken for the cardinals classic are yeah, toe kicker are we <laughs> jan stenerud for the chiefs 
Tom Dempsey for the New Orleans Saints. Tom Dempsey, the namesake of my, my only uh, only Stephen my fantasy Pablo football team could, this year. Could come out of last night's game and just talk about great field goal kicking as as the as two guys <laughs> shanked field goals to blow the game. I mean, when are we not talking about Jan Stenerud? If we're being honest with ourselves, I guys, I was on my couch watching this game and awoke. I, this is in no way an exaggeration. I awoke at, I believe it was 6.15 a.m. to the NBC local news on my couch. My contact lenses were in. I was in the clothes. I was not in any sort of pajama clothing. I was in the clothes that I had just worn from coming outside. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, this was a game that literally put me to sleep. And then when I woke up, I, I found that that was the appropriate response, I think. No, that's completely wrong. This yeah. was a game that went from bad all the way back around to so bad that it's good territory. <laughs> it it became the Nicholas some- Cage of, of games. <laughs> it became something transcendent. <laughs> On the second missed very short field goal, it became something special yeah. to be cherished forever. Yeah. The thing that occurred to me, I don't know if you're familiar with the Mina Kimes, Patrick Peterson's mom story, Pablo. I, I am. I am familiar. So I the only thing I could think about is what if Mina had been watching this game at Patrick Peterson's mom's house? <laughs> what would have happened with the chips? That that is a solution to the NFL's <laughs> rating woes that you guys discussed uh, previously. That would solve the NFL's uh, viewership problem is if Patrick Peterson's mom was in some sort of opt-in picture-in-picture <laughs> box that you could just turn to whenever a game got with got Mina Kimes every with week. With Mina Kimes, of course. Yeah. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we'll talk with Pablo about the difference between writing about sports and yakking about sports. Mm. <laughs> Pablo didn't know that. Pablo, he's excited. Uh, there's never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus. For Slate's 20th anniversary, for a limited time, you can get 30% off an annual membership. That's just $35 for a year of Slate Plus with bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more. So if you haven't joined Plus yet, sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash hangupplus. So 1947, that was a big year for baseball. That was the season where Jackie Robinson integrated the major leagues. It was the first year in which a World Series game was broadcast on television. The Chicago Cubs last played in the World Series in 1945, which means there has never been a black Cubs player in the World Series. And that means that a Cubs World Series game has never been on television. Both of those facts will change on Tuesday night when the Cubs' Dexter Fowler steps to the plate in a moment that will presumably be broadcast on Fox television. Back in May in Sports Illustrated, the great Charlie Pierce wrote, as a longtime Chicagoan friend of mine put it, a Chicago Cubs World Series championship is the last great American sports story. The Red Sox have had their moment. In fact, they've had three of them. The ongoing futility that is the city of Cleveland is an interesting historical glitch. Uh, And then he moves on to there have been triple crown winners, one as recently as last June. The Cubs are what's left. Uh, Pablo, do you buy that last uh, great American sports story? I don't think it's the last great American sports story in in the in the most, uh, you know, I guess, Catholic sense. And by that, I mean, just like we should consider more than just uh, who wins a championship as a great story. The definition should be expanded to other things like something as as stupid and wonderful as player X leaves team Y and now 
there is this whole soap opera-esque drama around that, which I consider to be great and American. But in terms of what this is, this World Series and winning that World Series, I actually want to take a step back because you had mentioned this Dexter Fowler stat, which is so tremendous and meaningful, and watching these celebrations of this ostensibly uh, great American story, making the World Series series alone right you had this scene in chicago where is this like dystopian like dance dance revolution-esque glowing cubs head clubhouse <laughs> where everybody is just throwing alcohol on each other cleveland everybody was similarly joyously apoplectic and and my sense is as much as winning would be this great american story like just m making the World Series seems like this great accomplishment, which can, we can celebrate for a window of a few days. But as soon as one of those teams wins the World Series and becomes that, that great story, the other team and that accomplishment we just celebrated and the historical footnote of the first black player making the World Series, that all seems to dissipate into nothing in a way that is fairly unique among things that we may enjoy as human beings. Like... There is a conditional joy that we're, in, we're kind of experiencing now, and it seems that it won't mean much when the actual World Series gets played. Yeah, that's a good point. And the NCAA with the Final Four is really the only entity that's managed to trick us yes. into thinking yes. that winning the championship isn't the only thing. That has never been the case in any of the major sports. No, that's exactly right. And, and look, I mean – there's a reason why we can, I mean, a lot of sports fans can say, wow, this team hasn't won the World Series since 1908, and that's the Cubs, and this team hasn't won the World Series since 1948, and that's, and that's Cleveland. And yet the stats, in terms of when they last made the World Series, are more obscure for a reason. Like, we just actually don't care about that. And so it does seem to be this all-or-nothing proposition, which is, again, adding to the flavor of that last great storiness but is also just kind of going to rob everybody in Cleveland or Chicago of the joy that they have felt for about 48 hours. I was struck by how celebratory the Cubs victory was, though. I mean, you mentioned the dousing with champagne, which we always see, of course, but there was something very emotional and different about the way the fans and the players celebrated getting to the World Series and the way that the announcers on Fox recognized that accomplishment. So I think this was an example of really recognizing the moment. And I think everyone did a really fantastic job of helping us get over this all or nothingness, that this really is a, a, a remarkable happening for this city. It is a statistical anomaly that is not likely to be repeated in sports. And, you know, then there's one more that needs to, to fall before it is a, a complete story. But the, I think making people aware that 71 years is a long friggin' time to not make it to something as random in a lot of ways as making the World Series was a, 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 a fantastic moment. How does this analogy work? The Indians are like Finland, mm -hmm. and <laughs> all of baseball history is like the Soviet Union that the uh, the Cubs. That's right. I, I heard that That's on right. Mike and Mike in the morning the other day. Did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn and it. I should, uh, first off, that's I, I co-sign that analogy, Josh. And and also, I will agree with you. Uh, Stefan, because I think it should be celebrated. Yes. It absolutely should be celebrated. And, and Joe Buck not saying anything for whatever it was, five minutes at the end, and, and everybody, done. yes, and everybody feeling like this was worth celebrating. They were correct. It's just that my fear is by the time the World Series ends, 
that feeling won't count for much. And it will again be, man, look at those Cubs failed to do it. You know, or and, if and, they fail to do it, it'll be we celebrated the wrong thing, and then yes, lapse exa- into, exactly will lapse into sports talk. Well, they took it to some achievement. <laughs> getting to the World Series was not a big enough accomplishment. We should not have been celebrating well, that. I thought Justin Peters did a good job. He's you know lifelong Cubs fan, has been vending uh, at Wrigley Field for seventeen years, and he wrote a piece the other day that made the point that the entire Cub fan psychology has shifted in the Theo era and especially Theo Epstein era, and especially this season when they won 103 games. And that it now it's transformed from this totally negative, how are we going to lose to, and, you know, losing the World Series would be a great way to put this to the test. But like this roster is so stacked, our management Our field manager is so smart. Our management is so smart that we're going to win eventually. And Chris Hayes said that on this podcast, too. Um, So, again, (laughs) losing the World Series will definitely put that to the test. But I feel like that kind of maybe gave fans license to celebrate Mm -hmm. in the way that they did just because it's not like this 2016 World Series, if they don't win it, they're just going to fade back into oblivion and it's going to be another 71 years. At least that's that's what the fans well, to, are thinking. To Charlie Pierce's point, though, we do like having these stories in sports. I mean, I especially miss the Red Sox not um, winning the World Series for <laughs> many, many years, 86 years. Um, so, I mean, as you know, in terms of the narrative and in terms of the conversation that people like us and regular fans can engage in, it is convenient to have these stories to fall back on. We love oddities in sports. We yeah, what love- do we have left? Northwestern not making the NCAA tournament in basketball? <laughs> that is like a huge decline going from Cubs not winning the World Series to Northwestern not making the NCAA tournament. That's all we have left. <laughs> we have the Expos Nationals. I haven't been to the World Series since 1924. So. The, the greatest by far um, thing in sports before Matt Kemp ruined it last year was the Padres never hitting for the cycle or throwing a no hitter. <laughs> that was my favorite yeah. dumb sports streak. But there is something. I mean, you were talking about how like the Cub fan has this new mentality, and that mentality is eminently rational. Like it's totally reasonable to think that way. And and I was thinking about that when I think it was like Anthony Rizzo after the game was was asked like, "How did you guys do it?" And he was like, "We're really young." Um, this doesn't mean a lot. I mean, the history and stuff. And whether you right. buy that or not, that, too, is a rational perspective. And that, you know, and, and that brings to mind all of those stats that you mentioned, like the Padres never hitting for the cycle or whatever historical stat. Like the players on the field are not the people who failed to accomplish that stat for generations right. and decades. Well, and so there really isn't much to do with them. But at the same time, like. We like to think that there is. And when Theo Epstein is inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, what they should put on his plaque is that he helped to introduce rationality <laughs> to the behavior <laughs> of front offices and fans. Because yes. that's what he did in Boston, and that's what he's done again in Chicago. All right, two things I want to talk about before we wrap this one up. First is, I think you guys both said, I guess explicitly, that you thought that the Fox coverage was really good. And I actually wanted to stick around and watch those interviews because it did feel important. There are things I hate his, about the Fox historic. coverage and have always hated for 20 years. <laughs> but Joe Madden was great in his on-field mm-hmm. interview. He yeah. took the mic and started emceeing <laughs> and demanded yeah. that people applause. That was wonderful. But, you know, while Joe Buck did kind of lay back for five minutes, he did at the end of the game, and Tom Verducci did on, on the um, 
on the field, talk about the curse of the, curse of the billy goat and, um, you know, the Sienna's family, 1945. They showed the, like, old newspaper. And that just bugged the shit out of Red Sox fans in, you know, 03, 04, um, when they did that on Fox. Did you think that they did a better job with the kind of needing to acknowledge it, but also doing fan service? Or is it just to Cubs fans have a less petulant personality than Red Sox fans? I do think they have a less petulant personality. Look, Chicago and its media embraced the idea that lovable losers notion has been in existence for 50 years or more. Um, Boston was always resentful and bitter about their <laughs> failure. Um, and that's what I miss the most about my Yankees fandom, the bitterness and the resentment and the inferiority complex. Chicago, <laughs> at least its media and the, the, the way that the team was portrayed embraced the failure and that and, kind of held the franchise back that, well it held it but it also it also it held the franchise back but it also maintained interest in the franchise that is my favorite kind of complex by the way the one where you feel so superior that you begin to long for mm. inferiority again yeah. um but my sense of 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 these broadcasts and even like when the red sox fans were complaining about it and i do agree that cubs fans seem to be more genial overall like i i just don't care about what those fan bases think right. in that moment you know, like I, I think it's totally reasonable for them to feel however they feel tribally when they are provided these stimuli of, of great shame and negativity. But like that's if, if that is indeed the story and that is indeed the context, like, I'm sorry, I don't care that you guys are bothered by that because this isn't like the regional Cubs broadcast. This is the national broadcast. So I didn't mind it, at least conceptually from that perspective. So the, the last thing um, that I want to talk about was using the World Series as a platform for a couple of larger issues. And we've given the Indians short shrift and get used to it, Indians fans, because, you know, you're the foil in this scenario. But one kind of big national story that's going to get bigger, and the New York Times wrote about it, is Chief Wahoo. And before the season, the Indians owner, Paul Dolan, had said, you know, we're not going to use this logo anymore. It's the, you know, racist Indian with the big teeth and the feather, you know, we're gonna not going to emphasize that. And then in the playoffs, they've used it in every game. It's kind of a bizarre turnaround. And then on the Cubs, you've got the guy who, you know, helped win them the pennant, Aroldis Chapman, who they got from the Yankees, who is a domestic abuser, was suspended for 50 games by Major League Baseball. And whether you believe or don't believe about giving um, players second chances. You know, he's served his Major League Baseball mandated time. He was just a total dick about the whole thing, refused to talk about it when he got traded to Chicago. There right. was a gun involved, and he's basically said, I apologize that there was a gun, but not for actual, you know, the, the actual abuse. And so that's going to be talked about as well. Um, do you have thoughts, either of you have thoughts on, on either of those? Yeah, it's one of those tests where we find out how important we think sports really are. And this is not news to anybody, but it turns out that in the moment, in context, sports feel dramatically, historically, sincerely important. I mean, this and this is, by the way, something that can be exposed by any manner of tests, whether it's how much we personally donate to 
fighting Boko Haram versus how much we spend on baseball tickets. But it is especially in sharp relief here because we spend so much time giving lip service to these topics. The oldest Chapman story was a huge story. Uh, the Chief Wahoo thing, of course, comes in the context of the Washington football team. And those may be different on some superficial level, but share some real commonalities. But when it comes to sports being played out live in a World Series context with all of this historical tribal baggage, and I mean tribal in the sense of the fan bases, not in the sense of the people who are being stereotyped and caricatured, it does feel like, you know, let's step back because it feels like we don't want to, you know, be the, the turd in the punch bowl. And the question is, what's the punch bowl and what's the turd, I guess? And for us, sports is what should be preserved. Sports, uh, sports should be the turd is what you're trying to say. That's what I'm trying to say, yes. <laughs> and how do you think it should be treated on... Fox or um, anywhere else. This is another thing that we should probably not care that will piss off the local mm -hmm. fan bases. Oh, I think we're going to hear more about how Aroldis Chapman and Andrew Miller came from the Yankees and are now facing each other in the World Series um, rather than what Chapman was suspended for uh, earlier in the season. But in the larger context of what's happening in sports, it absolutely should bears mentioning, if not by Joe Buck and the announcing crew on Fox, then by the people writing about sports. It is, you know, we talk about. Oh, it bears mentioning by Joe Buck and the people. Talking oh, it definitely Fox. does. I'm just thinking it's not likely to happen. So what does that leave? It leaves the rest of the commentariat to bring it up and to put it into the context of everything else that's happening in sports in the NFL. Um, as we're going to talk about with Diana Moskovitz later in, on this program, um, about the Josh Brown case, about the Derrick Rose case, about the general lip service, as you said, Pablo, that major sports give to, to protesting and raising awareness and punishing in some situations domestic violence. And look, baseball suspended him for 50 games. It wasn't like one game like Josh Brown got for the Giants. But where does the conversation and, and more genuine advocacy take over? Mm -hmm. And then the, the last one, you, made, you brought up Chief, Chief Wahoo and the, the logo. The Indians introduced that in 1947. That was the year that Jackie Robinson broke the color line in baseball and Larry Doby three months later broke the color line in the American League. With I should have put that in my intro. 19, 1947 is the year that everything happened. Yeah. I did not know that. And yet... We are still there's still there's a real terrific piece by Richard Sandemir in uh, the New York Times on Monday about the uh, about the Indians breaking the color line with Larry Doby and then the following year uh, signing Satchel Page and that was done by Bill Veck. Um, that what's so odd to me about the way this has been handled by the team is the on the one hand this claim that they're going to de-emphasize the caricature and they put the block C on their hats in some cases and in parts of the uniform. And on the other hand, it seems like they're using it a hell of a lot. It's been on the sleeves of their jerseys, you know, and, and typically it's the players who get to decide what uniform to wear. Starting pitcher often decides what hat to wear, and they're choosing that the, the caricature a lot. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
On Tuesday night, just a little bit before the Indians, Corey Kluber throws the first pitch of the World Series at Insurance Company Field. The Cleveland Cavaliers will get their championship rings literally across the street at Mortgage Lending Company Arena. A few hours later, the Warriors will host the Spurs in Oakland and Kevin Durant's debut for Golden State. What's the name of that arena? Uh, Internet company database thing. Place. <laughs> dot com. So here's here's a thesis. Starting in 2010, LeBron makes his televised uh, decision to sign with the Heat. The NBA offseason has grown to this enormous personality-driven, gossip-laden news thing. Again, starting in 2010, LeBron uh, has made six straight finals. I guess that was the 2011 finals. And then the Warriors became the super team, which has sapped some of the league's in-season on-court drama. In 2016, we see the culmination An intersection of both of these trends get Durant decisioning to go to the Warriors and everyone believing with extreme certainty that the Warriors and Cavs will meet in the finals for the third year in a row, which would be the first time ever that that happened. Uh, The two teams met three straight seasons. I've been listening to Zach Lowe's podcast, and the dude is basically having a nervous breakdown because it's his mission in life to think about and cover the whole NBA. But he understands intellectually that the season is a fait accompli if both of these teams stay healthy. And so, okay, getting back around to the core idea here, you've got the lack of in-season suspense, you've got all the off-season drama, and it's made the NBA into a league that is in large part about personalities and about interpersonal drama as much as, if not more so, than what happens on the court. The big storylines going into the season, Pablo, it's it's about whether Westbrook and Durant ever liked each other it's about whether Draymond Green is going to uh, blow up the Warriors and or start a nuclear war with Iran. Um, <laughs> the guy's combustible. Um, do you buy that? Is there more of an emphasis now on these guys? And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Emphasis on these guys as people and their connections to each other than there is suspense about what's going to happen in, in this NBA season. I absolutely think that's the case. And I don't think it is a bad thing. I mean, this is, this is again, like this is a great American dynamic. And it starts with the decision, as you astutely pointed out. Like, I don't know how you guys feel about the decision, felt or feel now, but I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday about the decision because we so, I mean, we, t- we talked before about things where like joy can be stolen. This is one of those things where joy is retroactively applied. Like, I find the decision in retrospect, while I found it horrible at the time, to be one of those things that is so funny and so joyful in the sense of like, oh, yeah, this is where the more fun version of the NBA was birthed. And I know there are some basketball fans, and Zach is absolutely one of them, basketball experts who, who are in this for, for not just X's and O's, but like who wins and who loses. But to me, this is like the premier telenovela for men in America in a way that the NFL is not. And we can get into why that is from like the ability to see players' faces to the impact of one player on a five-man lineup versus one player on a 50-man lineup, all of that stuff. But this is what's going to make me care about the regular season is, is that interpersonal drama, not so much... Yeah, finding out if the Warriors are gonna are, are going to win the title again because there'll be plenty of time for that. But it's an eighty-two game season. Like this actually makes me care on a day-to-day basis in a way mm-hmm. that I would not otherwise. I think it's always helpful to leagues to have um, sort of bullies at the top, to have these dynastic 
teams that that everyone can bitch about and say, well, we got to play the games. We're going to take them down. Um, and to have stats pointed out to us, like the Rockets, which Tom Haverstrow did this morning, the Rockets averaged 118.6 points per game in the preseason. They are going to find a way. They need to find a way to beat the Warriors. How will they find a way to beat the Warriors? That's interesting. I mean, and it's interesting, too. You know, we were we were riveted last year by whether the Warriors would try to win 73 games and whether they could win 73 games. So now we'll be riveted whether to see whether they can win 78 games um, and whether anybody can legitimately lay claim to having some um, system that can impede them from from doing these things. We don't need to relitigate the whole Durant thing, but um, I'm don't very. We? I, we do actually. We need, to re- we need to relitigate it. It's it's gone to the court of appeals. I'm happy for that guy. Good for that guy going where where mm-hmm. he wants to go. I'm a fan, but um, I think the league is at its best when you have the combination of these personality based stories with the uncertainty about what's going to happen, who the contenders are, who's going to win in the in the playoffs. And the negative thing about it is that even if you don't think the Warriors are locked, it's subtracted a contender from the league. There's right. now one less team that can inject some suspense into the later months of the season. And so that, I think, is a bad mm-hmm. thing for the NBA. And the other thing that I've, I've thought about, Pablo, is that you know the season never happens like we think it's going to happen. And that's in large part because of injury. But that's not a that's not a good positive reason why it's not going to be Warriors and Cavs. Like it's all hypotheticals when you're talking about what are the matchups going to be because some guy's inevitably going to be hurt. There's going to be a trade, but it's it's not like good. Like the the, the ways that that matchup would not happen would be because somebody got hurt. So that's not a fun thing to think about in October. No, and, and in fact, this gets to why I do value the soap opera-ness of these storylines increasingly, especially in a world where injury is the only thing stopping these teams, because my sense of the regular season, as somebody who's reported about how the Warriors handle injuries and biometrics in the NBA and all of that, and has just on this very podcast gone on a screed about how <laughs> the playoffs tends to rob people of their happiness, like, the Warriors realized above all else last season, that the regular season record, while it might be the most meaningful record, while it might be the hardest record and the most important record, that 82-game standard winning 73 of them, like, that's not what they actually want, and that's not what's actually going to make them happy. You know, like, they realize that even if winning that record is harder than winning a championship. And I would argue that it is because a championship like a diploma is something that you got to give to somebody every year. Like someone's got to get it. Um, No one has to break that record. Even if all of that is true, that's not going to insulate them from all of the shame and and unhappiness (laughs) and the Warriors went up 3-1 and lost in the finals-ness that they experienced. And what they're going to do as a result is realize that health is absolutely the most important thing that an unhealthy Steph Curry was absolutely one of the key reasons alongside Mm -hmm. Draymond Green for why they didn't win and they're going to go it's fitting that they open up against the Spurs because I think Steve Kerr is going to become a lot more like Greg Popovich Mm -hmm. you're not going to see Iguodala in the regular season a lot you're going to rotationally rest Steph Curry and Durant and Clay and you're going to keep their minutes down because there's just no point in tiring themselves 
out during the regular season. Um, even if, as Ethan Strauss pointed out in his terrific story, Draymond Green wanted to wring every bit of statistic out of that regular season run. And even with resting and applying rotation principles to this team, they can still have two Hall of Fame players on the court at any yes, one time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the great thing about the Draymond piece um, that, that Ethan wrote was, um, well, just describing the, the interpersonal dynamics on the team and the conflict in the locker room and Oklahoma City and the concerns that they have about his personality and how it might go wrong. That was all really interesting. But on a more macro sense, it was a great reminder that these are people mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. when we say that it's inevitable that these teams are going to match up in the playoffs, we kind of lose sight of the fact that they actually have to like go out and put a ball into a basket. Well, they also have to, to like happen. get on a and lot that, of airplanes and stay in a lot of hotels and eat in a lot of meals together and spend a lot of time in cramped quarters together. And, yeah. And they have, these are, are human beings who, you know, interact with each other in kind of strange and unpredictable ways yeah. that we don't often get a window into. And so this was a good window and a good uh, reminder of that. And I, and I, and to follow up on that point, Josh, Howard, um, Howard Beck has a piece on Bleacher Report that, portrayed the relationship among these players and a lot of people have done this in the offseason that everybody gets along and they just want to dominate the NBA for the next six, seven, eight years. And then you read Ethan's piece on ESPN, which raised the question of whether Draymond Green is such an explosive personality that it could be a hand grenade in the locker room at some point. And then I read another profile in which we learn that Draymond Green has basically been like this his entire life. And at Michigan State, though he instigated these kinds of blow-ups and fights during practice, at the end of the day, he was awarded and rewarded for his behavior, and everybody says wonderful things about him. So you don't really know what these personalities are like or how they will mesh or how one incident could trigger some sort of problem a major problem within a team. Oh, if you think about what like the definition of a diva is, and I think about celebrities who must be handled a particular way, not only because they employ the people around them, but because it seems like their greatness is tied to their difficult uh, mm -hmm. nature. Like that's Draymond. Like it's right. so fascinating to read Ethan's piece. And even in that story about everybody on and on back on record and on background discussing this very problematic person, the bottom line is we don't want to change him too much. Mm -hmm. And that is, by definition, like the human element. Yeah. Like, this is just a weird dynamic where sports, like celebrity, like music, you need to cater to this person because their greatness may be tied to how flawed they are. That is a great transition to what I think will be the last point in this segment. Let's, let's cue up the uh, audio of Russell Westbrook responding to a reporter reading him a, a quote <laughs> from Kevin Durant's uh, Rolling Stone profile. He said, um, in terms of being a family, you can feel it when you walk through the door. I feel really grateful to play for a team like that, to play with a bunch of players who are selfless and enjoy the game in its purest form. What do you think about him saying that about the Wednesday? That's cute, man. It's cute. But, you know, my job is to be able to worry about what's going on here, and we don't uh, worry about all that. Selfish guys we got over here, apparently. So we're going to figure that out. What a great sport this is. I mean, come <laughs> it's on. So, it's so wonderful. I love this so much. I love it so much. We are all finally, all of us men who repress 
our secret desire to watch General Hospital finally get a forum where we may revel in the interpersonal squabbling of, of two people of our own gender uh, in a way that is both shameless and, and truly sincere. I'm comfortable saying that I watched Little General Hospital when I was in high school. In Ethan Strauss's piece, to sort of bookend the Russell Westbrook response, you had Maurice Spates, which was my favorite quote in the end. Mo, Mo Buckets. Uh, Draymond fucked up practice and shit. Draymond's a good guy, but I think at the end of the day, it hurt the whole chemistry of the year. Yeah, I th- I think that that, that uh, piece, you know, it got talked about as, uh, you know, Draymond this, Draymond that. The, the real takeaway from that piece is most spades don't give a fuck. That he does was- not. He does not. And in fact, in fact, by the way, like he went on Twitter and then claimed that he was misquoted or the quotes were fabricated. Oh, that's, course, that's disappointing. On, I, I know, but that only adds to, really, it only adds another layer of him not giving a fuck. Because one of the things that Ethan Strauss, as a responsible reporter, who I then asked immediately about Mo Buckets' critique, does is record his interviews. So like, there's also a, a budding war between Ethan Strauss and Mo Spates, which I'm also very excited for. <laughs> Mo Spates now on the Clippers, right? And uh, the, the reason to follow the Clippers this year. The Clippers, are, they've got a dream team there. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. They do. Over the weekend, the NFL placed Giants kicker Josh Brown on what's known as the commissioner's exempt list. That is basically the mechanism whereby a guy can continue to be paid but is ineligible to practice or play in professional football games while the league looks into his behavior. The behavior that the NFL is looking into is uh, Josh Brown's domestic abuse. He was suspended for one game earlier this year. And then this past week, um, police department in Washington state released a whole uh, slew of documents, including journal entries written by Brown, where he admitted in very stark terms abusing his wife, saying literally, I abused my wife. Um, The NFL has said that it didn't have access to this information at the time. It's now reevaluating. That is perhaps not strictly true. Joining us now to uh, talk about what the NFL knew and when they knew it, among other things, is Diana Moskovitz, who's a senior editor for Deadspin. She's written a lot about the Josh Brown case, and she also covered the Derrick Rose trial in Los Angeles, which we'll get to in a bit. Hey, Diana. Hey, guys. Thank you uh, very much for joining us. And I'd like to start with this question of what the NFL knew and how the NFL has handled the Josh Brown case, maybe in contrast with Greg Hardy and Ray Rice. Is this sort of just the same behavior by the NFL and and the way that they've litigated the situation? Somewhat. Um I'd say the big difference between Greg Hardy and Ray Rice is the reception they've gotten from law enforcement. A big difference maker for them and Greg Hardy was that the Greg Hardy records uh, were not public for that investigation. 
and the NFL basically went to North Carolina and basically cut a deal uh, with local law enforcement and with prosecutors where they were able to get exclusive access to the Greg Hardy records, which they then used to leave either punishment, which still did not go as planned. Um, the difference is in Josh Brown, the investigators are doing what, I, I mean, frankly, we expect investigators to do, which is the NFL is reaching out, asking for the case file, and the investigators are saying, it, it's open. <laughs> Sorry, it's open. Which is, you know, the answer they give reporters all the time and members of the public all the time. And Meaning it's an it's an active investigation, and so just right. go go cool your heels, and we'll tell you stuff when we want to tell you stuff. Right, exactly, which is completely reasonable, I should say. Like this makes sense, and I think that if your priority is giving victims of domestic violence good and fair investigations, they should be saying that. That's that's good. You yeah, and. It. And yet the NFL has come to expect, or at least the public perception of the NFL, is that we expect them to engage in extra legal behavior. And we have this assumption that the NFL believes that it's entitled to extrajudicial attention because it is mm-hmm. the NFL. And what your reporting has pointed out, though, is that the NFL has been inept in its investigation of Josh Brown. Um, there were public divorce records available mm-hmm. to the league, um, basic reporting that you and other reporters did, um, accessed documents that would have given the league um, better knowledge about um, the case itself. We had reports that Molly Brown, his uh, Josh Brown's ex-wife, at one point was threatened by Josh Brown at the Pro Bowl at an NFL event, and that NFL security actually found her another room. So where does the NFL's incompetence or decision to, to not uh, investigate seriously lie? I mean, what's really happening here? You know, I think it's um, a mix of, on the strictly investigative side, I just think it's just so much incompetence. And we saw this with Ray Rice, right? I mean, the investigator who's in charge of getting the tape at one point was just hitting refresh on his computer screen. Um, I'm so amazed at how we're constantly hearing. And I think there's even a player who spoke out about it over the weekend about how the NFL is constantly bragging about all the FBI and CIA people they have on board. And yet... um, they can't even really seem to figure out that maybe they should put their phone number on the public records request. <laughs> it's just really basic, basic stuff that, you know, you think, I, I, I've worked with reporting experts who can figure some of this out. How much are they paying these people and why are they still on retainer? So on that side, I think it's just incompetence, laziness, you know, for whatever reason. But then internally with the reports on the Pro Bowl, that, um, you know, that's a whole nother matter. And, you know, the police records also have Molly Brown talking about how, you know, there were moments where she would tell, at least for me, this is what stands out. She would tell um, other wives of players what would happen. And then as she described it, then the wives would talk to their husbands and their husband would basically say, oh, but Josh seems like a cool guy. No, no way. And I do think that that's where you do start to see uh, something that's, that's very important, which is, you know, are you creating a culture where victims feel like they can come forward because they'll get help or where they just need to shut up and suck it up because no one gives a shit and doesn't want to hear about it? And I think that's what you see in what happened in the Pro Bowl 
and what Molly Brown is describing. Well, Diana, there is, there is, I mean, there's so much incompetence that you've exhaustively reported that, that, that is, is a, is a flaw of how this, you know, pseudo legal entity, uh, the NFL's investigative judiciary unit operates. But then there also just seems like to be this larger impossibility that even if this was a competent investigative judiciary unit, it's not possible to be free of conflict of interest. If you are the NFL and you are this body that is ultimately beholden to these financial commercial interests, um, like why, why would we ever expect the NFL to on any level get this right if the entire concept is flawed? Um, and I wonder about whether you think like the NBA, for instance, which has a different system but still has Adam Silver as the head of its judiciary branch, whether a lack of separation of powers, so to speak, also is a problem that afflicts the NBA, but the NBA is just better at not being so incompetent. Right, and I also think, and this is a factor with the NBA and the MLB, the fact that they have much um, stronger unions has made a difference. You know, so um, that's forced both sides to come to the table and and agree to some baseline rules, basically, that doesn't devolve into what the NFL has, which is it always devolves into a shit show, basically. You know, what I can't get over is, first of all, right, in terms of these shadow judiciaries, you know, there's a reason we have open courtrooms, <laughs> right? Um, right? We believe in having checks on power. We believe in having to monitor these people that we've given all this power to, because imagine if what crazy things they would do if we had no idea what they were doing, right? And so it does seem odd to think that we could give someone similar powers completely unchecked and everything's just going to go okay. Probably not. I just haven't seen that happen yet in my experience. You know, there's a reason in so many states we've made police reports public. And so that's always something that I think about when these leagues just swear they've gotten it right. We promise we got it right. We're not going to tell you anything we did, but we totally got it right. Sure. Whatever. (laughs) Um, You know, that's just not how the world works. I hate to be so cynical. But also, you know, with all these investigations, it's just, you know, I always come down to this question of how much of this is about actually making victims safer and how much of this is just about public relations. And in a world where you're going to throw down the hammer on these men, some of who are still married to these women, you know, the minute a nasty allegation comes out, um, does that tell victims, come forward, we will support you? Or does that tell them, suck it up? We don't want to hear about it because it makes us look bad. And I know that is not a fun conversation to have around domestic violence. You know, punishing people feels really good. It does. I, I get it. But it's, especially on these issues, they're so... It's just it's so complicated. We're talking about wives. We're talking about the mothers of children. You know, we might be talking about you know same-sex relationships. We're talking about a lot of stuff here, and we should be worried. I think now, especially with what we saw with the Browns, about you know, it might make us feel good. It might make for good public relations, but is it actually making anyone any safer? And that should be our priority. So this is a great um, opportunity to transition to this clip I wanted to play, which was Jeff Van Gundy, who was celebrated for saying this during a preseason game, um, talking about Darren Collison, a player who was suspended by the NBA for domestic violence, and also talking about Derek Rose. Let's play that clip. 
in such issues. And I'm going to say this. Darren Carlton of the Sacramento Kings just got suspended for eight games for his domestic violence conviction. And I love everything that Adam Silver has done. My one suggestion going forward is any felony committed against a woman should be a full season suspension. And on the second one, you're gone. Okay, a couple of points on this. First, it is good that Van Gundy is talking about this on a national broadcast and bringing attention to these issues. But second, I find it really curious and interesting that those of us who believe in criminal justice reform, we're like really into mandatory minimums as handed out by sports leagues. I mean, are you are you serious? <laughs> First of all, I think we need to address that what Van Gundy says is pretty much impossible, um, especially with violence against women, especially if we're talking about domestic violence. It very, very rarely ends with a felony conviction. If you look up the role in your average prison, you are not going to see a lot of men in there for domestic violence. Um, it actually reminds me of a bigger issue we don't talk about, which is how trying to crack down on domestic violence has unfortunately led to lots of women getting thrown in prison, which has to do with when women are defending themselves from their abusers, police don't know who to arrest, or arrest both of them. And, but yes, in, in terms of people doing it very rarely and in a felony conviction, I mean, it's just so rarely done that when he said that, I thought, wow, that sounds so good. That's also nearly impossible. Like, And that wouldn't apply to any of the cases right now. In both cases, right. I did in misdemeanors, which is what normally happens. So it, it almost, I felt like I was listening to a politician where they were saying something that sounds really good and everyone applauds, but it's actually completely impossible. That said, um, yeah, the push for mandatory minimums is... Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, if you're going to talk about it, you have to really unpack why the player conduct policies. Because I think so much of this comes down to this belief that, well, you gave a guy six games for pot, so you only gave him one for life feeding. What's up with that? And instead of revisiting why people are getting six games for pot, we just assume the answer has to be, so therefore, 10 games for life feeding. You know, instead of looking at this entire system that we've set up and going, does this even make sense anymore? Um, we just assume these systems make sense. And the problem is the punishments aren't harsh enough. And I think that's where a lot of this comes from. And I, uh, I don't know why player punishment policies are so popular. I think they're just so entrenched that people assume that they are the way of the world instead of asking, hey, why can't this just be like every other job where they handle problems as they come up? Well, I think it's partly because we invest something psychologically in athletes. So when Aroldis Chapman goes on the mound, as we discussed earlier on the program, we want to feel either a sense of revulsion at his behavior or a sense of 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 understanding that he served a punishment. We want there to be a punishment that is served. Um, and what the league's motivations are, I think, is open to debate. I mean, the NFL um, it, it has made a, a sort of business decision to be publicly aware on domestic violence and to create promos and public service announcements. And the only way we can sort it out is by how the league then reacts when something happens. 
Oh, right. It just removes everyone's humanity, doesn't it? Like, even with the punishment, like, well, we're punishing them so that the fans can feel good, right? Because this is a product and we need fans to feel good so we can get butts right. and seats, right? But, you know, I mean, I think, especially with domestic violence, if you really want to see leagues do something really proactive, it would just be, hey, we're going to take every case on an individual basis. You know, and we're going to treat our players like human beings. And, yeah, you might not like that fan, you know, but that's okay because we actually think we have a responsibility toward not making things worse, even if that means there's 10 less people in the stands. I mean, that's the really bold thing to do, right, is to say we're going to do something because it's the right thing to do and maybe even lose some money over it, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, what I think about a Ronis Chapman matters so much less than what his girlfriend thinks and whether or not there's violence in their relationship. Like, what I think should be, I don't know, fourth, fifth, most important, you know, frankly. Yeah, well, with the Rose thing, you know, look, my first thought, and this is a cynical thought, but... And this is beyond the actual human costs that Deanna was just describing. But like someone who's really happy right now is Adam Silver. Not just because we have this legal verification that maybe the thing that happened wasn't as bad as what we hypothesized. But Adam Silver seems like he has skated past a, a, a minefield where the NBA was just about to enter that realm of scrutiny where we were about to wonder, what is the NBA's justice system like? And now we don't have to do that. And I'm curious, Diana, as to what what your main takeaway was from the league perspective on the Rose case. Oh, goodness, the Rose case. That um, was quite a, a couple of weeks there. They, you know, I actually don't know if, if they skated or if they did. I think it, again, speaks to how, at best, pseudological all these, you know, league systems are because, after sitting through all that and reading a lot of the court documents, I don't think anyone came out of that thinking, wow, Derek Rose, great guy. Really great guy. Right. No, 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 no. Um, and this is really where you get into that weird area of he was not found civilly liable, you know. Um, but I can't imagine anyone feeling really great about what they learned about him either. And I think that speaks to how silly and, and flimsy these are because, you know, all this horrible stuff came out about Derrick Rose, but, well, not liable, so, oh, well, moving on. But I just think it shows how flimsy and PR-related they are because just because of the decision of a bunch of jurors who were taking pictures with him afterwards, the league is going to say that it they can't revisit this at all. And the Knicks, who actually employ him, are just going to say, oh, well, you know, So I had a question just journalistically about the Rose case and how it was covered. You covered it more exhaustively and better than anybody else. And I think I kind of fell down on the job because this was a civil case and there have not been any criminal charges brought. And as far as all of the kind of negative publicity around Rose, I sort of feel like Maybe this is wrong, but I don't think the average NBA fan or there are at least some NBA fans who don't even know that this happened. It didn't really get as much attention as maybe it should have because 
people didn't really know or understand um, for, uh, you know, a long time that this was a real serious allegation. And, you know, all of the stuff that came out in the civil case, you know, it's pretty clear, as you said, that Rose engaged in some extremely bad behavior. Um, and whether or not criminal charges will be brought up, you know, rape or sexual assault, we'll have to wait and see. But do you think that the press didn't recognize this quickly enough and did a bad job covering the trial? I don't know. It's so weird because when I was covering it, I'm in my little hole. And so, you know, I, I, there were other reporters there. And so in my mind, you know, it, it um, felt it just felt so different. It's so hard but this came out in 2015, so right? Um, right. And it just didn't um, get that much attention when it came out. It's tough. I can't speak to what's going through the minds of other news editors. I don't know why. I can only say why we did what we did. I, I do think when it's something in civil court, people think that gives them a way to dismiss it, where they can say, oh, it's just civil court. You know, it's, it's not criminal. Anyone can file anything in civil court. And she was portrayed by Rose's attorneys as being in it for the money. Yes. From beginning to end. That was in their very first statement and that was in their closing statement. So literally from beginning to end, that was their strategy. And it's worth pointing out that while his team always said this lawsuit had no merit, obviously it did because the judge let it go to a jury for trial. If it was a a truly frivolous lawsuit, it, it would have been dismissed as judges can do. Civil court has been on the issue of rape and sexual assault, a very important part of the, of the judiciary for women. Um, and so um, it shouldn't be dismissed, but I think that was the case here, you know, and it, it just gives people a way to say we don't want to cover it if they don't want to cover it, and they they didn't. I, I don't know why other places were, were there. I I think it's important to point out that the L.A. Police Department has said that there is an active criminal investigation in this case. I mean, I think yeah. one of the reasons we were a little confused by the Rose case is that when a, a civil case happens, we often think that criminal charges have either been dismissed um, or adjudicated. Right. This case happened almost, I think, backwards from the way people expect. You expect right. there to be a criminal investigation, and then that is resolved, and then you bring a civil case. Um, I, I will say I have seen civil cases occasionally filed before the criminal investigation is over, uh, especially when someone feels like the cops are kind of dragging their feet. So, But in this case, uh, what happened was she filed her civil suit, and then after that, the official police investigation started, and then the police say the investigation is still ongoing, but nonetheless, her case, of course, was going to go to trial because it could not reach a settlement and it was not dismissed. So it ended up going to trial while the investigation is still ongoing and is still open. We'll see what comes of that. I genuinely have no idea. All right. Diana Moskovitz is a senior editor for Deadspin. Um, you can read her coverage of Josh Brown and Derek Rose on that website, deadspin.com. Thanks, Diana. Thanks, Diana. Thank you. Thanks, Diana. Thank you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. 
We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for after balls. And because of the great kicking in the Cardinal Seahawks game on Sunday Night Football, it's only appropriate to talk about a great kicker. Stefan mentioned his name already. Jim Bakken. Yeah. Seven field goals <laughs> in one game, baby, 1967. Out of, out of nine attempts. Whatever. Kick toe. He was a toe kicker. Sing, single bar face mask. Rob Baronis broke the record with eight in a game yeah, in 2007. Yeah, 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 whatever. He set the record. All right. Bakken's. We got Bakken's. You want to go first, Pablo? Sure. The, sure. Mike, the Mike Pesca spot. What is your Jim Bakken? My Bakken is about uh, Jeremy Lin. And uh, you might think, guys, that Jeremy Lin is over talking about the subject of race because it's defined him since his arrival into the NBA when people called him a marketing stunt with the Golden State Warriors. And even well before that, it has defined him when players and fans in the Ivy League use the worst racial slurs you can imagine against him actually on the court. Uh, but Lynn is now with the Brooklyn Nets. He is their starting point guard. And he called in to uh, Boomer and Carton, which is a radio show here in New York, and was asked about racial tension with African-American players during his time uh, on the Linsanity era Knicks. And he said the following, I do think... There was always that type of component involved, but again, as I've always said, it's a double-edged sword. It comes with the good, it comes with the bad. I look different, and I'm treated different, and that's a negative thing. And in some ways, that's a really positive thing. Like, Linsanity wouldn't have happened if I was white or black or whatever. Part of the reason why it was so crazy is because I'm Asian. I think race plays a part into it. It always has. And so this just prompts me to have a little State of the Union as it comes to Asian Americans in sports and in America generally, because look, as suffering goes, like Asian Americans aren't winning the suffering Olympics. Like if we were to look at bigotry as a contest, there are other racial minorities that have been discriminated against in worse and continual ways, even if we underrate the bigotry that Asian Americans have endured. But what's interesting is that Jeremy Lin here is trying to complicate what it actually might be like to be Asian American in sports in this context specifically of a largely black sport. And it's interesting because we right now are still very much reducing these individual human beings of Asian descent into stereotypes, into people that are very uncomplicated. And that re remains as strong and permissible as ever, even if, even if there is some progress being made as a whole, because I just watched Fox News this month and saw a segment hosted by this guy, a pop-collared embodiment of white privilege named Jesse Waters, go to Chinatown and have one of the most offensive segments of television that you can look on YouTube and evaluate for yourself, uh, dealing primarily with, with Chinese Americans. It means that NBC just green-lighted a pilot about Filipina mail-order brides, never wondering about what that might mean in terms of representing Asian Americans on television. It means that if you were to ask somebody, and you can all do this at parties, it's a really fun game, who is the number one leading man in Hollywood of Asian American descent, you will get silence. And it means that Richie Incognito, if you remember Richie Incognito, again, in the NFL with the, with the Bills, it means that he's labeled a bully and many things, but he's not labeled a racist, despite calling the Japanese trainer on the Miami Dolphins 
every slur from chink to Jap to talking about Pearl Harbor and every terrible thing you can say to an Asian American person. That guy has evaded that branding. And, and Jeremy Lin, of course, is still called unathletic despite playing in the NBA for six years. And Jeremy Lin, ultimately, when he's asked that question on Boomer and Carton about what it's like to be Asian on those Knicks and in the NBA generally, he's not even asking for positivity. He's not asking for sympathy. All he's doing there is complicating it. He gets some benefits from being Asian American, the uniqueness, the branding of it, but he also recognizes that being Asian American still subjects him to to a stereotype and to a to a conception of what it's like to be that race that unfortunately still pervades the rest of the country as well. That was a good Bakken. That was the be- that was the best Bakken of all time, and not just because it was the first Bakken of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Pablo. Uh, Stefan, what is your Jim Bakken? Well, the absolution of Steve Bartman will be a big and stupid theme this week. Uh, He does not need to be forgiven. But you know who never should be forgiven? Anyone who contributed to the demonization of Steve Bartman, who sent death threats, who wrote in all caps on message boards, who created or shared memes, or who wrote songs. I found a few of those. Let's start with Steve Bartman's song by Wayne Faust off his 2004 album, Bald Guys and Beer. Once there was a cup fan, Steve Bartman was his name. Sitting on the third baseline at that playoff game. With those headphones on his ears, he looked like a geek to me. But he simply reached out his hand, and the Cubs were history. Faust's website dubs him an international comedy and music artist and a goodwill ambassador to everybody. There are a couple more verses of Steve Bartman's song, but I won't play them because that fucking tune has been pounding my brain for the last day. I will give Faust credit for taking a reasonably sympathetic stance on Bartman. Quote, he only did the kind of thing that you or I would do, he sings. But don't tell that to a million fans. Or to Moises Alou. All right, our next song doesn't have the professional bona fides of Wayne Faust. It appears to have been recorded in 2007 by a freshman in high school in Florida. Uh, it's called the Beverly Bartman Song, and it's sung to the theme music from the Beverly Hillbillies. Here's the third verse. The Cubs lost a series, their season was the war. And as we see the trainer, well, don't be sure. Lots of fans ejected, but it's just her destiny. Cause she kind of makes the series just once a century. I got the high quality production there. All right, here's another one from 2007, a Christmas song by Tom LaTourette of BeachwoodReporter.com. It's called Go Blame It on Steve Bartman. LaTourette cleverly incorporates Bartman's own statement of apology into the lyrics. I also like how he has children singing the chorus. I had my eyes glued on that baseball, caught up in the moment right from the start. I swear I didn't know that ball was playable. I apologize from the bottom of this Cub fan's broken heart. Oh, Sam Cianis is a cursed goat. I got a chicken bone in my throat. All right. Uh, that one ends with the singer imitating Harry Carey saying, Holy cow, Bartman spelled backwards is idiot. Harry Carey died five years before the Bartman game. 
All right, let's end with the one and only truly fantastic, both musically and ethically, song from the Steve Bartman songbook. And that would be Don't Blame Steve, released in 2012 by the Chicago rapper David Cohn, a.k.a. Serengeti. Let's pick it up with Serengeti's analysis of what happened right after the infamous moment. I knocked the ball down. My little starts whining and crying like a clown. Hey, settle down. I'm just a guy in the stands. Everyone starts bitching and cursing at this little man. To my left, headphones, padded orange ears. Follow his crust, facing his hand and pants. Security comes over, cuts the guy away. And throw mirrors at butts, but let the bees stand. The cursing and blaming. I'm telling him to pipe down. Calm it down. Calm it down. Calm it down. All right, so who should we blame? I shut up. Blame Asamaka. Blame Jeff Pico. Blame Damon Barrio. Blame Lloyd McClendon. Blame Bob Brindley. Serengeti adds that we could also blame Kyle Farnsworth or Mike Grudzelanek or Pelham, New York's own Gary Scott. I say don't blame Gary Scott. He graduated a few years after I did from Pelham High School. But just don't blame Steve. I agree. Definitely blame blame Ryan Kleskow, though. Yeah. (laughs) Josh, what's your Jim Bakken? Since Pablo is here today representing the worldwide leader, I thought it only made sense to celebrate the greatest thing that ESPN has ever produced just ahead of the 30 for 30 uh, short Friedman's shoes. So (laughs) back in 2008, in the run-up to the Beijing Olympics, there was this incredibly long torch relay. It lasted 129 days and 85,000 miles and passed through six continents. Olympics organizers called it the Journey of Harmony, But the relay was disrupted by protests about human rights and Tibetan independence, among other issues. This was written a lot by a number of different outlets, but ESPN provided the best coverage of anyone. Back then, page two was still a thing. That was the home of prestige writing and writers, uh, Hunter S. Thompson, Ralph Wiley, David Halberstam, Bill Simmons got his start there. Um, So in April 2008, page two, still around, published a piece of commentary on the torch relay that stands the test of time. Uh, I sent this link to Pablo and to Stefan. I'm um, currently playing it as you yeah. read. I'm sorry, Josh, did you say something? <laughs> <laughs> so this thing is called Torch Run. It is a flash game that has the following on-screen instructions. Use arrow keys to navigate torch to flag and avoid protesters. Ah. <laughs> the torch kind of looks like a torch, but it's really a white isosceles triangle with a yellow kidney bean on top. It looks like palm Fried, if we're being really honest. <laughs> the protesters are represented by red dots that move horizontally and vertically across the screen. The goal is to move your isosceles triangle bean slash palm Fried to collect the flag, which is a white square with the Olympic rings on it. Um, and you don't want to let your triangle bean touch the red dots. So you might argue, Pablo or Stefan, that this is a tone-deaf representation of the plight of uh, a large number of people, which is mm. fair, fair enough. But this is a great game. It's a great game. I got totally obsessed with Torch Run in 2008, <laughs> and I'm only kind of ashamed to admit that I still play it today all the damn time. I play it when I'm on the phone. I play it when I'm thinking about what to, what to write in the next chapter of my book. I play it when other people are doing their afterballs. I actually think I might be the best in the world at Torch Run, and that's only partially because nobody else knows that it exists. <laughs> but I am so good at this at this dumb thing that I can actually break the game. There's a certain point when you get to around a score of 300, 
300. I'm at 55 right now. (laughs) That the thing just stops working because there are too many red dots, which is perhaps a biting social commentary about the power of mass (laughs) protests. But I think it's actually more a commentary on how Flash really sucks. So I have a recollection. I asked my friend and Slate's editor-in-chief, Julia Turner, about this. I had a memory of getting her into Torch Run, Mm -hmm. circa 2008, of starting the Slate's uh, staff obsession. She wrote me back, I strongly remember not getting hooked on this game. (laughs) So your mileage may vary. We'll put a link on our show page so you can try it for yourself and try to get 300 points and break the game. This reminds me of an Atari skiing game I played in 1985 when I was a senior in college. Stefan seems distracted, so I'm just going to read the uh, closing credits. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Thank you, Pablo Torre, for joining us on today's show. Of course. I'm now at uh, 75, so scores are only getting up there, Josh. Be scared. <laughs> Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. You don't even need to touch the... Olympic rings. You can yeah, you can kind of just like traverse them. the border yeah. of the game. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a way, yeah. it's a way better strategy. I mean. Yeah. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com/Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty and play a stupid flash game for eight years consecutively without stopping. And thank you for listening. Don't blend Scott, don't blend Steve.